I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 35th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that our mission as a church is to provide effect an effective argument for the historical reality of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to our community. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. February 22nd, and this is the 35th part of the Last Year of the Life of Christ series. And our text for this morning is John chapter 11, verse 27, which says this. She said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. God bless the reading of his word. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, we ask you that you would give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now this week, my son, who was redesigning our website, asked me to develop a mission statement for our church that he could put on the website. And I gave him this statement. Our mission is to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ to the Lansing, Michigan community. It is to present an informed, insightful, intelligent, and convincing argument to those that are not saved that Jesus Christ was a person of history rather than imagination and that the biblical accounts of his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection from the dead on the third day following his crucifixion are history rather than myth. Our mission as a church is to provide an effective argument for the historical reality of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to our community. And it is my job to preach and publish presentations that affirm the evidence that Jesus Christ was a real person and that the biblical accounts of Jesus's activities are as historically accurate as are the accounts of the lives of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, whose birthdays we celebrated last Monday. Now, my credibility when documenting the history of Jesus Christ is the reason that I never entertained my son with the popular fables of Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, or any of the other childhood myths that children are usually told. I knew that I was going to tell my son of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I did not want him to have memories of my telling him myths as truth to cloud his picture of the Christ. Now, when I was a child, 
My parents told me the traditional myths, but at the same time, they insisted that I tell the truth and did not hesitate to punish me if they caught me in a lie. And when I reached the age to question the truth of Christianity, I did so because the idea of the resurrection sounded like the myths that my parents entertained us with when I was younger. And although I began going to church when I was about five or six years old, became a church organist at 14, and spent a great deal of my childhood in churches, I did not actually become a Christian until I was 27 years of age, when a young man from the church which I was attending visited me at home to persuade me to increase my participation in the church. I told him that I participated in church because I believed that the church was a socially positive organization, but that I did not actually believe in the myth of Jesus Christ any more than any of the other myths that adults tell children. Jesus Christ is not a myth, my visitor told me. The biblical accounts are literally true. Well, I beg to differ with you, was my reply, because the things that the Bible says about Jesus Christ can't possibly be true. Well, he said, the Bible is true, and I can prove it to you. Oh, really, was my incredulous reply. I love proof. Prove it to me. So my visitor asked me to meet him at the Michigan State University Library, and there we began a study of the recorded life of Christ, the life of Jesus' apostles, and the first century church. And during my research, I discovered that the body of history concerning the life of Jesus Christ is such that there is literally no person in the history of the world of whom there has been more historical inf information recorded and about whom there is more evidence available. As I sifted through the mountain of documents that describe the history of Jesus Christ and of the early church, I found that one of the most interesting facts in Christendom is that all of the apostles who were the original members of the Christian church, with the exception of the apostle John, were executed as a response to their testimony of their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. History records that the apostles were given a clear choice by the Jewish, Roman, and other authorities of the day that would allow them to live unmolested if they would only agree to stop preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to a man, the apostles consciously and intentionally chose execution rather than to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. And this fact made it clear to me that Jesus Christ was actually an historical person rather than a myth. For if he were not a real person, and if he had not done the things that these men testified that he did, why would all these men choose execution in order to affirm their testimony? Now understand that these men did not die as the result of warfare, nor were they being killed as they defended their families. These men chose execution. And in many cases, their families were executed along with them. And being executed is not the same as dying in battle. John Fox, the author of Fox's Book of the Martyrs, estimates that as many as 1,800,000 people became martyrs for the cause of Christ between 34 AD when Jesus died on the cross 
and 313 AD when the Emperor Constantine ended the 10th persecution under the Emperor Galerius. Fox writes, It is both wonderful and horrible to pursue the descriptions of the sufferings of those godly martyrs as they are described by the ancient historians. Their torments were as various as the ingenuity of man, excited by the devil, could devise, and their numbers were truly incredible. Some, says Robanus, were slain with the sword, some burnt with fire, some scourged with whips, some stabs with forks of iron, some fastened to the cross or gibbet, some drowned in the sea, some had their skins plucked off, some had their tongues cut out, some were stoned to death, some frozen with cold, some starved with hungers, some with their hands cut off or otherwise dismembered, were left naked to the open chain of the world. Augustine, speaking of these martyrs, says that though the punishments were various, yet the constancy in all was the same. And notwithstanding the sharpness of so many torments and cruelty of the tormentors, such was the number of these faithful saints that Hierome in his epistle to Chromantius and Hilodorus observed, there is no day in the whole year unto which the number of 5,000 martyrs cannot be ascribed except only the first day of January. The historical fact is that almost two million people chose death rather than to recant their testimony that they believed in Jesus Christ. And the foundation of the Christian church literally rests on the blood of the martyrs, which caused me to ponder the question, why would these people voluntarily give up their own lives for a religious preference. Now the intense loyalty that the cause of Christ engendered began in part because of the historical episode from which our text today is taken. John chapter 11 verse 1 through 4 records, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, of the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus told his disciples that Lazarus became ill for a purpose, that being for the demonstration of Jesus' power and glory. The episode continues in John 11, 5 through 7. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed two more days in the place where he was. After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now the last two times that Jesus went to Judea, as recorded in John chapters 8 and 10, his messages so offended the Jewish leadership that they tried to have Jesus stoned to death. The disciples were concerned about Jesus' welfare, as the next verse, John 11:8, shows. The disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus explained in John 11, 11 through 15, these things Jesus said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but the disciples thought that Jesus was talking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, the disciples are not really exactly sure what Jesus means about waking Lazarus up from the dead, but Jesus has already so impressed the disciples that they are ready to go, as Thomas indicates in John 11 and 16, which says, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So Thomas understands the danger that Jesus is courting by going back to Judea, but he and the disciples think that they are ready for whatever violence may ensue. But Jesus is not going to fight or to die, but to see about the dead Lazarus and his sisters. The episode continues in John eleven seventeen through 19. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, the mention of, of the Jews in John 11 and 19 is the spotlight, the traditional mourning style of this culture, in which mourning is a time of public emotional expression. Professional mourners accompany the mourning family with loud wailing and crying to provide an emotionally expressive environment so that anyone that felt inhibited in expressing their grief could feel comfortable in expressing their sorrow. But Jesus' arrival was the perfect distraction for Martha, as Martha still held hope that Jesus could do something about Lazarus' situation. John 11, 22 records, Now Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha has faith that Jesus can do something about her situation. Luke 17 and 6 instructs us, so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And the most important thing that anyone in communication with Jesus Christ has to have is an absolute faith in Jesus' ability and in his decision-making. Jesus speaks to reassure Martha that her faith has a foundation. John 11, 23 and 24 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus is not talking about the resurrection at the last day. Jesus is talking about the new reality that he is bringing to the world, the reality in which death is no longer a terminal issue. In John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus Christ 
in his statement to Martha, gives the reason that the apostles and the long list of martyrs in church history chose to die in the defense of the gospel. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Those of us that believe in him will never die. And if a person believes that they will receive eternal life because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, they do not perceive their physical death as a tragedy. Death will either lead them to eternal life in heaven or the effects of death will be reversed when Jesus Christ uses the power of God to restore them to life physically. Sacrificing oneself for Christ becomes the greatest testimonial of faith in him. And in the first three centuries of existence of the church, Christians in massive numbers spread the gospel in an extremely hostile environment, volunteering to die for the cause of Christ, and they did so because they were convinced that Jesus Christ had power over death. The foundation of Christianity is recorded in John 11:25 25 and 26, in which Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 3.16 says it thusly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Martha's response to Jesus' declaration is recorded in our text for today, John 11 and 27. She said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now, this statement is the confession of every Christian on the planet. In order to be a Christian, it is necessary that one have an intellectual belief in the fact that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. To clarify, although Martha calls Jesus Christ the Son of God, to the Jews, being the Son of God was synonymous with being God. Jesus said to the Jewish leadership in John 10 and 30, I and my Father are one. The Jews reacted to this statement in John 10, 31 through 33. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now the Jews knew what Jesus was saying, and they thought it best to kill him for it. But Jesus responded to their threats in John 10, 36-38. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus made it clear that he did not intend to convince us of his deity by just talking. That is the reason that Jesus did not head to Bethany when he first received the news about Lazarus. In order for Jesus to give both those that loved him 
and those that hated him a reason to believe in him and be saved, Jesus made a public exhibition of the power of God that was so undeniable that we would all have evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. And after Jesus gave Martha hope for Lazarus, Martha called the weeping Mary. John 11, 28-32 records, And when she had said this, these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not come, yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But although Mary used the same words as Martha, her thinking was different from Martha's. Martha came in faith that Jesus would use his power on her brother's behalf. Martha told Jesus, but I know whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Mary, on the other hand, is mourning her brother's death without the expectation that Jesus could do anything. Mary's words to Jesus are words of recrimination rather than expectation, meaning you should have been here to stop this from happening. And Mary's grief is exacerbated by the feedback of the paid mourners who are crying with her. And her sense of despair and grief causes Jesus great sadness as he wants all of us to have faith similar to that of Martha. And Jesus is frustrated when we lack faith in him. John 11:33-35 says, "Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and Jesus said, "Where have you laid him?" They said to him, "Lord, come and see." Jesus wept. Now, Jesus is not weeping over the death of Lazarus because Jesus is not sad about Lazarus. Jesus could easily have stopped Lazarus from dying, but did not do so because Jesus had a much greater miracle in mind for Lazarus. But Jesus is saddened by the lack of faith shown by Mary and the mourners, despite his many demonstrations of power. Jesus' frustration is similar to that that he showed when he entered Jerusalem during his last journey. In Luke 11, 19 and 41 through 44, which says, Now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps when he brings us salvation, but we prefer to stay in our sin because we are wallowing in our self-centeredness and cannot see the help that he is bringing us. 
A particular woman married a man who was a drunkard and a philanderer. The man mistreated her horribly, and while she complained to her friends and family of how he was so cruel and wicked, she remained married to him. The man fathered several children by the woman while he continued to treat her cruelly. But one day, the man came in contact with the minister who was able to point the man to Jesus and convince him of the error of his ways, at which time the man decided to stop drinking and begin treating his wife in the way that a wife should be treated. Shortly afterward, the wife filed for a divorce from her husband. In the mandatory marriage counseling that the, George, that the judge ordered for the couple, it came out, that the woman craved the attention that she received from being the victim of an oppressive man. She was part of a family and social circle in which complaining about boyfriends and husbands was the major topic of conversation. She had come to think that her role in life was to suffer from the mistreatment of a man so that she could receive sympathy from the group. And she was so focused on the sympathy that she received that she could not give up her victim status to make the adjustment to a healthy relationship. A healthy marital relationship requires wives to focus on the needs of their husbands and for husbands to focus on the needs of their wives. But this woman was so self-centered that the only thing upon which she could focus was the strokes that she received from her peers as the result of her victim status. She was so excessively self-centered that she wanted sympathy for suffering more than a good life with her husband. Now, Jesus loves us all and wants all of us to take advantage of his gracious goodness. But many folks choose to complain and cry rather than to consider the possibility that the Lord has come to bring us joy. And Christians actually sin by denying themselves the pleasures that God has in store for them just so that they can show that they are suffering sufficiently. But Jesus makes it clear to us that there is no virtue in self-inflicted suffering. In the B portion of John 10 and 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And to see folk ignoring the power of God in order to maintain their self-centered focus on a pity party is frustrating to Jesus Christ to the point of making him weep. And the mourners also miss the point of Jesus' tears. In John 11:36 36 and 37, the Bible says, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Some of the mourners thought that Jesus was showing sympathy. But others thought that Jesus should have healed Lazarus before he died. They were correct in thinking that Jesus had the power to do so, but they did not understand that to do so was not part of Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan was to increase the, increase the faith of all by showing his power to the world. So Jesus acts in John eleven thirty eight 38 through 44. The Bible says, then Jesus, again groaning to himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. 
And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Lazarus was dead and stinking, and Jesus raised Lazarus back to life with just a word. Jesus was not in Bethany when Lazarus died or when Lazarus was buried. The tomb was sealed before Jesus came to town, and the stone seal had not been disturbed. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead with a simple prayer and proved to his disciples that he, Jesus, had the power of life and death. And after the resurrection of Lazarus, death was no longer the problem for the disciples that it had been previously because they have just had an ocular demonstration that Jesus Christ can call man, men back to life from the dead. And one of the reasons that I believe that the Bible is history rather than myth is that the men who saw and participated in the miracles recorded in the New Testament, including that of the resurrection of Lazarus, were changed. And they were really changed when they spoke to Jesus Christ in the upper room after his personal resurrection from the dead. The Bible records in John 20, 24 through 29, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it may be that the most compelling testimony of the apostles is not the lives that they lived after Jesus rose, but the death that they died. In 36 AD, Stephen was stoned to death, becoming the first Christian martyr recorded in Acts chapter 7. In AD 44, James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by Herod Antipas, recorded in Acts chapter 12. In 52 AD, Thomas was killed in Cranagore, India, by a Brahmin priest who knocked him to the ground and struck him through with a lance. In AD 54, Philip, after having ministered in France, was pierced through the thighs and hung upside down on a cross until he died at Heropagus in Phrygia at the age of 87. In 60 AD, Matthew was slain with a halberd in Egypt, 
A halberd is a weapon that consists typically of a battle axe and a pike mounted on a handle about six feet long. In 62 AD, James, the brother of Jesus, was cast from the pinnacle of the temple, showered with stones, and finally his skull smashed and his brains beaten out with a fuller's club. He was buried on the Mount of Olives. A fuller's club is a blacksmith's hammer. In 64 AD, Matthias, the apostle who took Judas's place, was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. In 67 AD, Peter, after completing the book of 2 Peter, was crucified by Nero. In 68 AD, John Mark was dragged to death through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt on Easter. In 68 AD, Bartholomew, after having ministered in India with Thomas and Thaddeus and Philip and Heropolis, died after being beaten with clubs, flayed alive, and crucified in Armenia. In 68 AD, Paul was imprisoned in Rome and wrote 2 Timothy shortly before he was beheaded by Nero. In 69 AD, Andrew was crucified at Achaia on a cross in the form of an X, hanging there for three days before he died on the last day of November. In 69 AD, Luke, who had been ministering with Andrew, was crucified at Patros, Greece, by being hanged on an olive tree by idolatrous priests. In 72 AD, Thaddeus was killed with a halberd at Edessa, and Simon Zelotes was sawn asunder in Persia. In 73 AD, Barnabas was killed by the Jews in Salamis on Cyprus. In 97 AD, Timothy reproved the pagans of Ephesus for their idolatry, causing them to fall upon him with clubs and beat him. He died two days later from the beating. And finally, in 97 AD, John the Apostle died of natural causes at Ephesus on September 26th. All of these men, except John, were executed in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as were almost two million others, and they gave their lives because they believed the evidence that Jesus Christ himself gave as he was crucified on the old rugged cross, buried in Joseph's new tomb, and then rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning. Jesus has made a clear path to heaven for us, and to reach it, we need only believe in that which he has done. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 records that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I challenge you that if you do not believe, do the research as I did, and you will be convinced by the history that Jesus Christ is Lord. The evidence is clear and abundant, but the choice to receive it is yours. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for our lesson. And we thank you for the clarity of that which you have done in history to convince us that Jesus Christ, your son, is the Lord of life and our Savior. And Lord, we know that we live in a time when men ridicule you and when men tell us that the things in the Bible are myths. But we know that you have given us sufficient evidence that we can find out the truth for ourselves, that the evidence is clear and abundant, and that we have the opportunity to find out because you made it so clear that one day Jesus Christ came down from heaven lived on earth, 
died on the old rugged cross, rose from the grave on the third day, and has ascended and made a way for us to have a right and a just right to the tree of life. Now, Lord, we thank you for the evidence, and we ask you, Lord, that you'd make it available to all of us that we might research for ourselves and come to the saving knowledge that although the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today, and we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.